Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. A nobleman and his small group of attendants are clattering along the long road from Poitiers to Paris. It's late spring. The hedgerows are full of buzzing insects and the skies are alive with cheerful birdsong. Sadly, there's no time for these guys to stop and admire the wildlife. They have urgent political business to attend to in the French capital. Anyone watching this little party trot by would be intrigued. Who could they be? They're clearly well off. They're riding comfortably on horseback, as is natural in this age. The nobleman is riding straight-backed, with his slender legs hanging evenly on either side of his noble steed. But there's no obvious coat of arms on display. And he's keeping his smooth, beardless face trained firmly on the ground, his cap pulled low, avoiding the eyes of anyone they meet on the road. Is he just shy? Does he fear robbers? Or has he got something to hide? It's hard to say. At least, it is until the party nears Chartres, a busy city built around a massive cathedral with one of the tallest spires in the world. As the city looms into view, the attendants leading the party draw suddenly to a halt. The nobleman looks at them quizzically. They had no plans to rest before they reached their lodgings in Chartres. What's going on? Then it becomes all too clear. Four of the group turn to face the nobleman. There's been a change of plan, they say. We're not going to Paris anymore. The nobleman looks stunned. He can't believe what he's hearing. These companions are among his most loyal and trusted men. That's why they're on this journey. The attendants explain where they're actually going. Not to the capital of France, but to the court of the Plantagenet King of England, Henry II. The nobleman's heart sinks. He knows he's been betrayed. Henry's court is the last place the nobleman wants to go. But the traitors in the group outnumber the honest men. Resistance, as they say, is futile. And there's no point keeping the cap on and hiding his face any longer. The next time they stop to rest and change horses, he can go back to wearing his normal clothes. An elegant gown, a flowing headdress, tasteful jewellery. And he can go back to riding a horse in a more respectable way. Side saddle, 
legs dangling over one of the horse's flanks, twisting to face forward as the horse plods along. Because this nobleman isn't really a nobleman at all. He is a she. He is, in fact, the Queen of England. It's Eleanor of Aquitaine. She was on her way to Paris to join her eldest son, young Henry, and his two brothers, Richard and Geoffrey. They've rebelled against their own father, King Henry. After much debate, Eleanor has decided to join them. That meant abandoning the Plantagenet lands, disguising herself in men's clothing, and hurrying to the court of none other than her ex-husband, King Louis VII of France, who's been encouraging the rebellion against Henry. She thought she'd planned her escape to Louis's court perfectly. After all, many years ago, she'd managed to escape from it in the opposite direction. She thought she could trust her attendants. She was wrong. Sure, King Henry has his flaws, but he's never out of the loop. He's had spies in Eleanor's inner circle this whole time. And now they've shown themselves. They won't tell Eleanor where they're going, only that King Henry is expecting her. Eleanor is under arrest. It's time to face the music. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 11, Queen's Gambit. All right, confession time. The story I just told you may or may not be true. Or rather, something like that happened in 1173. But there are places where I've had to fill in the gaps and give you my best guess as to what actually took place. But hey, that's medieval history. Don't hate the player, hate the game. The bare facts, so far as historians can work them out, are these. Eleanor of Aquitaine was on her way from Poitiers to Paris, disguised as a man, when she was betrayed by her own attendants. She was taken to her husband Henry, who discovered that she was rebelling against him. That's not too shabby for 800 years ago, but there's plenty we don't know about this story as well. Was she in Chartres or nearby? Was it springtime or late autumn? We'll never know. And crucially, was she the gleeful architect of the rebellion or a reluctant late adopter? There's not quite enough evidence to be absolutely sure, and there are as many opinions as there are historians. It's frustrating, but it's also typical of what we have to work with when it comes to Eleanor in the 1170s. There are as many mysteries as there are certainties. She was such an extraordinary character that myths and legends were building up about her, even in her own lifetime. Take this for example. As we heard back in episode 7, in 1167, Eleanor and Henry sorted out their faltering marriage and she moved back from England to her Duchy of Aquitaine. Her job was to keep the place running smoothly and mentor her second son, Richard, the future Lionheart, to one day take it over. According to one romantic telling of Eleanor's story, that wasn't all she did. 
For years, historians have argued about whether or not she and a group of high-born noblewomen created what's known as a court of love. This was a sort of play court in which women were in charge and called the shots. But they weren't deciding the rights and wrongs of criminal cases or property disputes. They were weighing in on matters of the heart, like a sort of ye olde agony aunt column. The book that's usually cited as evidence for the Poitiers Court of Love is known as The Art of Courtly Love, written by Andreas the Chaplain. We don't know much about Andreas except for some tidbits he reveals in his writings, such as the fact that he was an expert at flirting with nuns. That said, his book is a great read, full of outrageous theories and arguments about the nature of love and the relations between men and women. And it does imply that a court of love really existed, presided over by Eleanor. She's actually named in the book. Andreas quotes Eleanor, supposedly verbatim. At one meeting of the Court of Love, she was asked if she preferred her men old or young. Apparently, she answered this question with a wonderful subtlety by saying, We distinguish between a good and a better love by the man's knowledge and his character and his praiseworthy manners, not by his age. Eleanor went on to say that young men tend to have a thing for older women and older men for younger women. So this love court sounds like fun, right? But here's the catch. Just like Eleanor's thwarted escape to Paris in 1173, we have no idea how much, if any, of this stuff is really true, and how much of it is part of the Eleanor legend. Over the years, some historians have taken Andreas the Chaplain's word for it, imagining that Eleanor really did set up a court of love at Poitiers. But today, almost everyone believes that this story comes from the same tradition as the great King Arthur stories that were being written in the same area of France around this time. In other words, this is a fantasy. It's not true, and readers at the time weren't supposed to take it literally. Which brings us back to the tale of Eleanor's attempted escape to Paris. We only have one detailed source describing it, an account by a chronicler called Gervais of Canterbury. When he writes that Eleanor was disguised as a man, was that literally true? Or is this supposed to be an allegory, saying that joining a rebellion against her king and husband was very unladylike indeed? In this case, I think it's probably meant to be literally true. Eleanor was on the road and on the run. But the evidence is slippery, so I'm just warning you here. When it comes to Eleanor, the facts are notoriously hard to pin down. Especially after she arrives to meet her husband Henry and finds out what her punishment for rebellion is going to be. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to what we do know about the war that tore the Plantagenet family apart. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. In the last episode, we heard how what became known as the War Without Love began. After Thomas Beckett's murder... Henry II disappeared to Ireland for a while. In his absence, some of his unhappy subjects started suggesting to his 16-year-old eldest son, Henry the Young King, that the old man was past it, and it was time for a new generation to step up and take power. When Henry returned from Ireland, his relationship with his son went sour and fast. And when you're the king and wannabe king, you aren't just arguing over who left the milk out. The young king was already pretty hacked off that he was denied any real say in ruling England, Normandy and Anjou. And in early 1173, when old Henry granted some of young Henry's castles to the baby of the family, John, tensions exploded. With the righteous anger of a wronged teen, young Henry stormed straight off to the court of his father's arch-enemy, Louis VII he started assembling a coalition of disgruntled nobles from inside the Plantagenet Empire and other enemies on the Empire's borders. It wasn't long before he had the backing of the powerful Counts of Flanders, Blois and Boulogne, as well as the King of Scotland. That must have stung. But even worse, young Henry managed to persuade his brothers, Richard and Geoffrey, to join the fun which was doubly damaging. Richard was in training to take over Aquitaine. Geoffrey was in training to take over Brittany. And both, obviously, were leading members of the Plantagenet family. So this was a humiliating blow for King Henry, as well as a political disaster. We can only hazard a guess over how much Eleanor encouraged or discouraged her younger boys from joining the rebellion. My feeling is that in Richard's case, it's impossible to imagine they didn't talk it through. She was his mentor in Aquitaine. Presumably, both of them felt they weren't getting the independence they craved. Old Henry was constantly meddling in their affairs, and so perhaps if he got a bloody nose from the rebellion, they would finally be free of him. All the same, it's clear that Eleanor didn't jump ship at the same time as her boys, Richard and Geoffrey took the leap of faith first. We know that because as soon as news of their defection to the rebels reached old Henry, he had one of his counsellors write Eleanor a letter, warning her not to follow them. The letter said, and by the way, trigger warning for some old-school medieval sexism, 
The woman who is not subject to her husband voids the condition of nature, the mandate of the apostle, and the law of the gospel. Man is the head of woman. Woman is taken from man, united to man, subject to the power of man. The letter demanded that Eleanor admonish your sons to be subject and devoted to their father, who has suffered such anguish, so many crimes and travails from them. And it finishes with a pretty blunt demand that Eleanor get her ass to Henry's court ASAP, or face the consequences. This is a guy, if you recall, who got so mad over a minor insult once that he ate his own bed. We can imagine his state of mind at this point. This letter, unlike our chronicle accounts of Eleanor's flight to Louis, is unambiguous, and it helps us establish a clearer account for what happened in 1173. Young Henry rebelled, he persuaded his brothers to join him, once they'd done so, Eleanor was instructed by old Henry to sort them out, and to get to the Plantagenet court immediately, but she didn't. After what must have been at least a short period of soul-searching, she chose her children over her husband and set out for Paris, maybe in disguise as a man. Then, on her way there, she was betrayed and brought to Henry after all. And then Henry had Eleanor imprisoned. Not for a few days, not for a few weeks, not even until the rebellion had played itself out. No. Once Eleanor fell into Henry's hands, she was placed under house arrest for the next ten years, followed by another six years of what we might call day release. That's a hell of a sentence to lay on anyone, especially your own wife. It's a sign of just how seriously old Henry took his wife's betrayal, of how appalled medieval society was by women disobeying their husbands. In one way, it's a backhanded compliment for Eleanor. Henry feared that she posed more danger to him than anyone else in the Plantagenet world. But even with his wife safely locked away, Henry's problems are only just beginning. Two neighbouring kings, three of his own sons, and growing numbers of counts and lords are all joining together to bring him down. But we'll save that for next time on This Is History. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. Not only that, but as a subscriber you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.